The philosopher Kierkegaard said, we have forgotten how to exist. We can only think and talk about being. He said that over a hundred years ago. What would he say now? There is a terrible suffering that goes on in the hearts and minds of most people in our culture. And it's because of an a split between the head and the heart. We use terminology like head and heart or mind and heart or we talk about the cold intellect or we talk about the way the heart knows. These are all phrases that we had to coin because we have a loss of understanding of the Hebraic understanding of what the heart is. This terminology is a concession to this false dichotomy. We have split head and heart into two separate entities. The scripture doesn't do that. Scripture speaks of the core out of which springs thoughts, emotions, motives, courage, and actions. All these are spoken of as coming from the heart. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for out of it come the forces that control your life or direct your life. Both minds are operable in this context, not head versus heart. Spirit and soul are used interchangeably in the Hebrew Scriptures, not conscious versus unconscious or head versus heart, but simply the, the Bible speaks of cleansing the heart. So Scripture acknowledges different faculties of man but never speaks of us having two minds. If it does speak of it, it refers to our double-mindedness. But here again, the Hebrew word is not double-minded, but double-hearted. Only one heart with two mindsets. Paul expresses this in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, when he says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Now, we get all confused about that terminology. We, we think of the word Spirit as ethereal, spooky, unreal. And this has to do with this very split that we're addressing here. Uh, when Paul talks about walking in the Spirit and not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, he's not talking about living in some spooky, non-physical form that is outside the time-space daily activities of physical life. He's talking about living in, a, in, in alignment with the heart of God and the mind of God and the Word of God so that what comes through your physical body is the character of God. Now, we, we have all kind of funny terminologies that are so common we think they're scriptural. Like, for instance, when someone, myself included in times past, will say when they've sinned, Oh, I know I shouldn't have done it, but God knows my heart. 
Well, what do we really mean when we say God knows my heart? Well, I'll tell you what I think we mean. I think we mean that though my body has acted in a way that is sinful, because my mind has chosen to use my body in a way that is sinful, whether it's moral failure or mistreating someone or taking something that's not mine or you name it, uh, we say, well, all of that may be true, but God knows my my true heart. And what we mean, we don't say true heart, but we, we mean there's a there's a true heart in there somewhere that is mysterious and pure, and it would never choose this sinful path that we've chosen. Uh, so it is our, it is our true uh, nature, and so you know we, we don't mean to be trying to exonerate ourselves. I don't guess we do, but uh, there I'm doing it myself. W- yeah, sure we do. Sure we do. There's not this strange dichotomy between my pure spirit and what I do. Now, legally, yes, legally, we're forgiven. Positionally, we're a new creation in Christ. But with all that being true, the purpose of that legal position is to bring us into real manifestation of the character of Christ in our life, our relationships, and our behavior. So when we say God knows my heart, well, he, God does know my heart. And our ongoing sinful behavior proceeds out of our hearts. Jesus said that. So I don't think we're going to want to contradict him when Jesus says in uh, Mark chapter 7, what proceeds from a person's heart is what makes him or her unclean. For from out of the heart come wicked thoughts. Notice that. Out of the heart come wicked thoughts. Sexual impurity, stealing, murder, adultery, coveting violence, lies, unrestrained conduct of any kind, slander and evil speaking, pride and foolishness, Mark seven twenty one and 22. The Hebraic understanding of man united with the gospel revelation of the incarnation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the salvaging of the entire person. Now, this is what salvation is in the New Testament. You know, when Zacchaeus uh, comes down out of the tree and Jesus says, salvation has come to this man's house today. Jesus didn't read, read him the four spiritual laws. He, he didn't even lead him in a sinner's prayer. I, I know that sounds scandalous to the evangelical ear, but Jesus is using the word salvation in its proper term, which is the the reintegrating of that which has been divided and broken. Uh, David prays uh, in Psalm 16, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Gather up all the broken, disintegrated parts of me that are estranged from you, estranged from myself, and estranged from others. Bring healing. This is healing, salvation, wholeness. They're all the same word. 
It, it was only in the 18th century and on into the 19th century that salvation got divided into uh, the saving of the soul from an eternal separation from God. And I'm not saying that's not true, for heaven's sakes. But for earth's sakes, we better get the biblical de definition of it back in our minds because so many people, myself included, suffer the ravages of a false dichotomy between head and heart and I say that I, I still suffer from it because I have to live in a culture that is absolutely rife with it. I mean, we are eaten up with it. And uh, every person I deal with uh, in my attempts to help people through all kinds of issues and struggles and battles in their life, I'm always coming up against this, this false dichotomy and, and the term that I just referred to, God knows my heart. And when I say to someone, well, okay, what is in your heart? Let's examine your heart. Uh, what, what's going on in your heart? Well, you can only know what's in your heart by what's coming through your behavior, your, your thoughts, your words, and your ultimate character. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Uh, Daniel 2, 30. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, I speak this to you, O king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. In Acts 8, verse 22, uh, that the thoughts of your heart may be forgiven you, Peter said to Simon the sorcerer. The, um, the word heart is used about 400 times in Scripture, and only about 10 of those times is it referring to the blood pump. The heart knows, uh, the Bible says in Proverbs, the heart knows its own bitterness. That means when you somehow successfully cut yourself off from experiencing and being aware of bitterness in you, the heart knows its own bitterness. And out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus says, the mouth will eventually speak. So when we say something horrible or painful or cruel or whatever, <clears throat> and then we say, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know where that came from. Well, Jesus told you where it came from. It came from your heart. And we say, well, I didn't mean it. I take it back. That doesn't work. You did mean it on a certain level, and you can't take it back. You can only repent of it and ask forgiveness for it. And and so <clears throat> we've we've developed this this grandiose and false psychology in the modern world that makes a cubbyhole for all kinds of willful, chosen, nurtured, protected, sinful behavior, then when we manifest it in our interactions with people or in our own private lives, we take false comfort in the idea that, well, that's not the real me, that God knows my heart. Now, now let me be careful here not to miscommunicate to you we are, we are broken, even after our conversion. He who has begun a good work in us will finish it. So God begins the work of restoration of our true self, even though uh, positionally, if any man or woman is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things are become new. 
that's positionally true. But it, I don't have to waste any of our time here or insult your intelligence by uh, you know, talking about the fact that just because you're born again doesn't mean that all your character has been purged and your behavior is, is uh, sinless and you're doing, you're doing great. And so we end up with this struggle that we don't know how to fight through. And I think instead of facing it head on and taking it uh, to the cross and doing whatever is necessary to bring it uh, to the cross, and, and let the Holy Spirit do the work in us that he wants to do and is going to do, we've developed this false psychology where we say, God knows my heart. And uh, yeah, God does know your heart. And yes, you are positionally forgiven. And yes, he does not hold your sin against you. Uh, that's the whole point of, of the gospel. That's why it's good news. But Grace doesn't just cover sin like a Band-Aid. Uh, that's what, that's what uh, the, the uh, sacrifices of the Old Covenant did. They covered. But grace in the New Covenant has come to complete what the Old Covenant foreshadowed and pointed toward. The cleansing and restoration and the giving of a new heart upon which are written God's laws so that you, for, you, you fulfill them in your normal living because of union with God in oneness of heart. Don't we all long for that? I mean, aren't you, aren't you at the place in your life where you really want to go beyond mere legalistic claims? Or maybe I shouldn't say legalistic. Uh, don't you want to go beyond just the mere legalities of positional justification? Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful for positional justification. That that in Christ I, I am a new creation. But you know, when I mistreat my loved ones and I react to things in an unchristlike way, or I behave in ways that disappoint me and frustrate me, uh, the purpose of that failure is to bring me back to beyond the, the justifying message of legal justification into union with the real person, the real, the real Jesus, the real God. And so Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we can all quote it. The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Uh, I told you the Hebraic understanding of soul and spirit is that they're used interchangeably. Only the Word of God can divide what is coming out of my unhealed soul and what is coming from my spirit. But seeing. In Hebrew, there's not this spirit, soul, and body concept. The, the three parts, if I can use that term, and I hate using it, but the, the three parts, spirit, soul, and body, are certainly all there, but they are, uh, in Hebrew, it's, it's body plus spirit produces soul. It's not body, soul, and spirit, where you have a body that's a big circle and the soul is a littler circle and then the spirit is a tiny little circle on the inside. You know, we, we use that 
symbolism, but it's not really good. It's not really accurate. Uh, no, picture a body formed and, and uh, sculpted. And then God comes and does mouth-to-mouth resuscitation into that body. He breathes into that body the, the breath of life, and man becomes a thing alive. It is the breath of life, uh, the, the, the breath of the soul, the, the life of the spirit. See, ruach is breath, and it produces soul, which is your, your mind, your will, your emotions, your personality your appetites, your desires, your feelings, all of you, you, the real you. And that's why uh, it goes on to say that only the Word of God has the power to separate all these broken parts in us. See, we, we do have parts of us, but it's all because of the fall. It's not the way we were designed. And Jesus has come to restore, to to reclaim, to put back together, to heal, to to integrate all the broken parts. And so uh, he carries us through different processes in our life by his grace that are meant to bring us to the end of our coping mechanisms so that we we then embrace his presence and his truth. And the word of God then does its surgical work. It's able to divide the soul from the spirit and even the joints from the marrow. And that's a, a symbolic term that speaks of the deepest parts of our very nature, that which holds us together, the joints and the marrow. And is a discerner. That word discern there means the analyzer, the exposer, the sifter, the judge of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's why, by the way, I wish I had time to go into this in more detail, but if you read that verse, then you understand why the next verse says that we have a great high priest who's passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, who who is not untouched by the feeling of our infirmities, but understands us because he himself has been in a human body and walked through this warfare. And so he's not indifferent. He's never cold-hearted. He's never legalistic towards you when he's letting the sword of his word penetrate those parts of you that you don't know how to deal with. This is the work of grace. See, Titus chapter 2 tells us grace doesn't just cover, as I mentioned a while ago, grace comes to teach us how to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts so that we can live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So uh, you, you begin to understand that this, this false concept of the separation of head and heart that causes us to have to coin all kinds of phrases that we, we have to use. I use it all the time. Head, head and heart. Oh, he's cut off from his heart. Oh, he lives in his head. Uh, uh, she's, she's cut off from her heart. You know, we, there's, not a, there's not a gender definition here. We tend to think, well, men are cut off from the heart and women are cut off from the head. Well, no, that's not true. And we can't get into all that right now, but... The, the fact is that to be cut off from the heart man, it manifests a certain kind of 
psychological and relational brokenness. And to be cut off from the head obviously manifests another kind. But let me just give you just a short overview of how this split occurred. How did this, how did this, how did we get here? In Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus talking to the church of Ephesus, and he, he, he commends them for all they're doing right, but then he says, I have somewhat against you, because in the midst of all of your doing right, you have left your first love. One translation says you've left the springtime of our relationship. And he says, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, what was the lampstand in the tabernacle? If you're going to understand the symbolism of Revelation, you're going to have to understand the tabernacle of Moses. The lampstand was the only source of light in the holy place. The holy place corresponds to the soul of man. Uh, the uh, holiest of all corresponds to the spirit and the outer court corresponds to the body. And of course, that's how we ended up with kind of our bullseye concept of spirit, soul, and body. But the bullseye is just not helpful. It's not accurate. But anyway, um, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27 says, the spirit of the man is the candle of the Lord searching all the hidden parts of the deep the deep heart. Here again, now the soul and the spirit are used interchangeably, and that, that's too much to get into here, and maybe in other sessions we can talk about it. But the, the, the soul of man needs the candle of the Lord to search out whatever in it is dark. And Jesus says here, uh, you've left your first love, as a result, you're on the threshold of losing your candlestick, losing your ability to see. Now, historic, or your ability to see into your own soul and to understand the human psyche and understand how to heal it. Now, uh, this is the history of, of Western culture. It's not all of it, of course, but it is a, it is a main subject that we've really taken for granted. I want to quote to you here from Leanne's book, The Healing Presence, where uh, she says, referring to this dynamic I'm referring to in Revelation chapter 2, that um, it is through Christ that we know the Father and the Spirit. The church that knows God the Father and God the Holy Spirit is always Christ-centered. In the history of the church, as the ecclesiastical structures grew, the church became increasingly theocentric, and there came a time when the church was no longer Christ-centered. Its mysticism, therefore, ceased to be Jesus-centered, Christ in and with us, the way of knowing God and of the divine supernatural. Though theocentric or God-centered, in, in its failure to practice the presence of Jesus with us, it lost its relationship to God the Father as well. In other words, God seemed very far away. 
He became an abstraction, the kind of God that the pagans acknowledged, rather than the personal, present, loving Heavenly Father. People then, as now, could not live in such a meaningless gap. It was at this point that pagan thought began to infiltrate the ranks of Christendom. Having lost incarnational reality, personal fellowship with God, the church had no defense against such pagan thoughts. Pagan spirituality and mysticism began to replace and war against what was left of the knowledge of the presence and the Christian supernatural. It was here that the controversy between faith and reason began. Do you understand what, what Leanne is saying there is that when, when the presence of Jesus began to be disregarded, when the presence of Jesus with us and in us began to be disregarded, when the church hierarchy began to develop a concept of Christ as being uh, a political pawn that they could use to control the masses or to control the the, the political structures. If you don't do what we say, we will we will deny you the Eucharist. Uh, legalistic concepts of the atonement begin to be cranked out. Where Jesus is uh, only saving us from God's wrath in the sense that God is angry and hateful toward mankind, and Jesus, like a pagan sacrifice, dies to appease the angry, mean Jehovah. Uh, this all worked together to remove the real presence and to, uh, and to cause the masses to be terrified of God. And uh, so they, they, by not loving Jesus as their first love, as they lost their springtime of first love, they begin to lose their light. They begin to go into darkness. They begin to live in the darkness of their own souls, and they begin to look inward and see nothing but darkness, and this was terrifying. Then they looked upward and saw even more darkness, but the darkness that they saw when they looked upward was a darkness of, of God's wrath and anger. There was no great high priest standing between them and that darkness. And furthermore, they, they didn't have the image of God being shown forth in the face of Jesus, as Paul says, that the, the Father is known in the face of Jesus. And so they begin to develop out of the darkness in their soul. They begin to, out of their wounded imaginations, come up with all kinds of dark, horrible images of God, dark, horrible images of eternity, dark, horrible images of, of their own destiny. It was a terrifying, horrifying, hellish collapse of what God intended. But Jesus warned that would happen if they left their first love, if they left the childlike springtime simplicity of loving and knowing him, practicing his presence, drawing near to him, letting him draw near to them so that they could walk in the light as he is in the light. He says, if you, if you don't repent of this, 
I'll remove the candlestick. Why would he say he's going to remove it? Because he's not going to hold a light for them while they misrepresent him. And while they, you know, he's not going to bless a misrepresentation of all that he is and all that he intended. And so uh, this is why there's these little spots of light uh, down through the the centuries, especially in Europe, where certain people got revelation of the things uh, that we're talking about. St. Francis of Assisi, uh, Julian of Norwich, uh, uh, St. Teresa, Catherine of Siena, uh, Madame Guillaume to some degree, you, even though Madame Guillaume's concepts in some ways I think were jaded by uh, some incorrect views that led toward quietism, and that's more than you need to know. But anyway, uh, let's just go over this. This is obviously just a rough thumbnail sketch of how this developed, but I, I just want you to have an idea in your mind of we, we didn't just get where we are because it just appeared. And we need to know that where we are is the result of wrong thinking and wrong teaching so that we begin to rise out of this false milieu and live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and live in the the light of the revelation of the new covenant. First, there was the loss of first love. Jesus said, you've lost your first love. You don't love me anymore with all the good stuff that you're doing. Second, Pagan mysticism floods in where the real presence used to be, but now there's the real absence. God is so unknown unknown and unknowable uh, that this darkness uh, makes a way for the flooding in of muddy mysticisms, mixtures of truth with all kinds of false concepts. Uh, Next, we cannot love or listen to an abstraction. See, if God is just an abstraction instead of a person, instead of personally knowable, there can be no fellowship with an abstraction and therefore no faith. See, Jesus said, uh, the scripture says, without faith it's impossible to please God. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder, or that he'll respond to your approach to him. So without without recognizing his real presence, there's no faith. And if there's no faith, there's no relationship. Uh, and worship in this part of church history became really an appeasing of an angry deity instead of the approach to a loving Heavenly Father. Uh, there's no way to appease such an angry deity. And so there began to be a split between faith and reason. Now this split between faith and reason uh, divided the, 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 the mindset and the people of Europe of that, of that time into the superstitious and the uh, elite the, uh, the, the superstitious masses, the ones who believed in all the hocus-pocus, the ones who believed in the invisible, uh, up against those who were truly informed and understood life. And uh, this spread throughout Europe. And uh, again, you, you understand, I'm, I'm doing a ridiculously simplistic job of this, but I hope I can give you a mind map so that you understand 
where this all emerged from. And you start realizing, maybe with the Holy Spirit's help, how much your own thinking has been dichotomized by this split. And so you have this uh, this false dichotomy between faith and reason, and that ends up being false dichotomy between science and religion, false dichotomy between head and heart. It, this is a disintegration. You see the disintegration. And this is the work of the principalities and powers uh, of 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 the devil. Uh, reasonless faith produces superstition. Faithless reason produces scientism, which is just a, a, the religion of science. And they both end up producing the same fruit. You, you, you go to the superstitious end with no reason, and you end up with the occult or, or with all kinds of aberrations of spiritual demonic manifestations. You go the other direction towards scientism, and you still end up with Frankenstein. So, uh, you know, this is what Screwtape was talking about when uh, he says, you know, in the days when they believed in us, we could make magicians out of them. Now they don't believe in anything spirit-related. They're uh, materialists. But we long for the day when we can have the perfect combination, the materialist magician, that person who denies the existence of the spirit and yet still believes in forces that he can manipulate, then we will have our perfect combination, which is Antichrist. Anyway, uh, in reality, it never is this versus that. What you end up with is the diabolical. Diabolical. You know, parabolic means that which lays alongside something else to clarify it. Diabolical means to make something into two that should be just one, so you trip over it. We speak of the devil being diabolical. Well, he's he's disintegrating, destroying, seeking what uh, seeking what he can dis, dis dismember, dismantle. If he can dismantle your thinking, he can dismantle you. See, so so David rightly prays in Psalm 16, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Integration is salvation. It's bringing back together that which has been divided and set asunder uh, in the universe. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 through 10. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in every kind of wisdom and understanding. See, every kind of wisdom and understanding. Uh, Rational wisdom and supernatural wisdom, head and heart. Making known to us the mystery. Paul uses this phrase several times uh, throughout his writings. Why? Because he's already aware of a of a rising d- demonic uh, attack on the church that says only the elite can understand the real realities of the universe, and the poor, stupid, muddled masses can never understand. See, only the philosophically un- uh, educated, only the 
those who have been initiated into the the mystical, uh, uh, magical secrets, which eventually became Gnosticism. Uh, They're the only ones who know. Paul purposely sticks uh, his finger in that lie when he uses these, these references to mysteries. See, in the New Covenant, you have men who are ignorant and unlearned, uh, according to those who were their detractors. When Peter and John went up to the beautiful gate and healed the, the lame man, they said, who are these ignorant and unlearned men? Uh, but the book of Acts says they took note that they had been with Jesus. Ignorant and unlearned? No, they had been with Jesus. That was the difference. Uh, and being with Jesus is the integration of head and heart. Uh, make known to us the mystery of his plan, purpose. What is God's plan and purpose? This, this is it. In accordance with his predetermined plan in Christ. And this is that predetermined plan. For the maturity of all history and the climax of the ages. To unify all things and head them up and consummate them in Christ, both things in heaven and things in the earth. That's God's ultimate intention. So it's understandable that the enemy would be operating in the opposite direction of God's ultimate intention. God's intention is to bring together all things in Christ. The devil's intention is to disintegrate everything. And so... To, to the degree that you think of yourself as uh, a head cut off from your heart, or maybe you're a person who is uh, more in touch with so-called matters of the heart, and you're not in touch with the head, uh, you can begin to come into a better understanding of of how God intended things to be. Now, on the on the current scientific uh, side of this, this whole issue of head and heart, uh, you you need to know that there is ongoing, increasing research in the fact that the heart knows things and has its own functional brain mechanism inside of it. Let me read to you here an article about uh, researcher Dr. Andrew Armour says of Dr. Armour's work, he's a heart specialist who has noticed that the presence of neurons in the heart, uh, and he noted a sophisticated collection of these and learned that the heart contains a complex nervous system of its own. He soon released uh, this research when he realized that there is a more intimate connection between the heart and the brain than had previously been known or understood. Indeed, the doctor claims that the heart actually sends more information to the brain than the other way around. Uh, It says in his writing, quote, groundbreaking research in the field of neurocardiology has established that the heart is a sensory organ and a sophisticated information encoding and processing center with an extensive intrinsic nervous system sufficiently sophisticated to qualify as a heart-brain, quote-unquote. 
Dr. Armour discusses intriguing data documenting the complex neur- uh, neurons and the processing of uh, those neurons and memory cap- capabilities of the intrinsic cardiac nervous system. Your heart remembers, your heart feels, your heart knows, your heart communicates, indicating that the heart brain can process information and make decisions about its control independent of the central nervous system by providing an understanding of the elaborate anatomy and physiology of the cardiac nervous system. Uh, This monograph continues to the newly emerging view of the heart as a complex, self-organized system that maintains a continuous two-way dialogue with the brain and with the rest of the body. Another researcher, Professor Paul Pearsall, has also made a contribution to the new discussion of the intelligence of the human heart. After interviewing nearly 150 heart and other organ transplant recipients, Pearsall proposed that the once staggering concept that cells of living tissue could have the capacity to remember. Well, we've been saying this for years. The heart remembers. The body remembers. We, we know it's true uh, because of the number of people we've dealt with over the years and, and my teachers who preceded me uh, dealing with people whose bodies have remembered and retained uh, the memory of certain trauma. And uh, in prayer, in healing prayer, those traumas would begin to be uh, uh, extricated up out of the body tissue and they would relive them and, and healing would occur. Well, I'm saying all of that to say this, that in this split between head and heart is the gap where so much suffering occurs in the lives of people. You see, it's in this, ca- it's in this gap uh, where the, the heart is not given its place, where the, everything is tried uh, to be sorted out through intellect. Not Holy Spirit-informed intellect, which is the good of reason, but mind trying to figure itself out like a ditch trying to dig itself. And so you end up with, uh, on the one side, those who are cut off from all intuition and, and don't even acknowledge, or if they do acknowledge it, they can't access it. They don't even acknowledge, though, usually, the intuitive ways of knowing. See, Aristotle said there's no way to know anything unless you can do it cognitively. He completely rejected any concept of, of revelation or in, uh, intuition, unlike his predecessor, Plato, who, who did believe in the communication of knowledge from the invisible. So Aristotle becomes the father of this disintegration. And this, this, this philosophical mindset gets woven into the, the, the church. Theologically, the church rejected it, but practically, the church embraced it. And so it slowly became this terrible split. And when it, when, when it splits theologically, then those under that theological training split psychologically. 
once they split psychologically, they disintegrate. And this is where uh, you have what we have now. I mean, we're disintegrating like no culture in history. Now, how do you restore the lost lampstand? If losing their first love caused them to lose the lampstand, and that plunged them into darkness, which plunged them into psychological and emotional terror, which caused them to look up to a, a heaven that was not welcoming, but was austere and dark and frightening. So the only way they could escape this unknowable and unappeasable angry deity, since they have no Jesus standing between them and it, although you understand that angry deity is a false image altogether, uh, the Father was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself. Jesus came to reveal the Father, it was the Father's heart that was manifested through Jesus. Jesus did nothing except what he saw his Father do. He and his Father are one. Uh, but see, without without that uh, understanding, you've not only got a terrifying deity, but you've got no no high priest between you and that deity. Please keep in mind, I'm going to say it again, even though I just said it, Jesus' high priesthood is not to save you from God. Jesus' high priesthood is to bring you and the Father back together and restore you to God, not restore God to you. God never was, God never hated you. You hated God. God never rejected you. You rejected God. It's never God being brought back in right relationship with you. It's you being brought back in right relationship with God. Anyway, uh, now, what does all this have to do with the imagination? Well, it has everything to do with it. The, the true imagination, the holy imagination. Because the, the true and the holy imagination is what God intends to communicate to you all the time so that you learn to live in touch with real things instead of in touch with broken, twisted, perverse dark, false things. Jesus said in John 10, the devil comes for no reason except to kill, steal, and destroy. He comes to de destroy, destruct, deconstruct everything. Uh, I have come that you might have life and that more abundantly. And so uh, when you live with a mind that's not believing in the invisible real, if you live with a mind that is in uh, opposition to the invisible real, then you have no faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who come to him. So you don't believe in the real presence. You don't believe that God is present with you. You don't believe that the words he sends are true, so you don't practice his presence. And uh, by not practicing his presence, you have no first love. And by losing your first love, you lose your candlestick. You end up in the dark. And so you walk around in the dark of humanistic psychology or New Ageism or materialism, or sexual uh, addiction, or drugs, or alcohol, or 
modernistic religion on the one hand, or hyper-legalistic so-called orthodox religion on the other hand, it's not hard to understand why there's so many, many, many versions out there. I mean, how, so many churches, so many versions of Christianity. Because once you turn, like Chesterton said, you can only stand in one place. After that, you can fall in any given direction. And so uh, those who try to find God cut off from the real presence and cut off from uh, understanding and acknowledging the revelation of Scripture and bowing to it and letting the Scriptures take them into the real presence of the real Jesus who brings you home to the Father. Without that understanding, you're left with, on the, on the one side, the muddy mysticisms, hyper-occultism or hyper-charismatic, weird charismatic manifestations that are, I'm not talking about real charismatic manifestations that are scriptural and that are in line with the, the character of God. I'm talking about muddy mysticisms, weird mixtures, people who live uh, in a Gnostic concept of being in the inner circle and having a special line to God and hearing voices and never consulting the scriptures, never consulting the body of Christ, but living to themselves in some kind of maverick spirituality that gets off in all kind of craziness. Or on the other end of the spectrum, hyper-legalistic theology that adheres to Scripture without the Spirit. And so they claim to bow to the Scriptures, but like the Pharisees, uh, John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said to the Pharisees, search the Scriptures that you claim to be so enamored with. In them you think you have life, but they point to me, and you won't come to me in order that you might have life. How is it that there were Leaders in Israel, you understand not all the Pharisees were Pharisaical. There were, there were godly Pharisees who sought the Lord and, and saw Jesus for who he was. But how was it that, that the, the system, for the most part, claimed to be looking for Jesus in the Scriptures, and when the Word is made flesh and stands right in front of them, they totally miss it? Because somewhere along the way, they stopped looking for God and loving God and seeking God and and began to honor a system whereby they could operate their own willful power grab through the system. And I mean, you surely don't think that's the only time that's happened in history. (laughs) So we have the same thing going on now. We have whole structures of religious dominance and control, uh, and only God knows who in those systems loves him and truly seeks him. And there's people everywhere that love God and seek him in spite of the crooked system. But there's not a system out there, no matter what name it goes by, that doesn't have this demonic stronghold built up within it that really in, is meant to keep you from God rather than draw you near to him. Like We've said so often before, some of the best places to hide from God is in some churches. So uh, th- that all being the case, uh, and then on, on in any 
group, whether they're Christian or not, whether they're into muddy mysticisms or into hyperlegalism, the the thing you see most often in across the board is people who live cut off from significant parts of themselves. Uh, this introspect introspective ability to look in and look in and look in and never come to any whole conclusions. You find versions of that among the atheistic, among the orthodox anti-charismatic, among the muddy mixture mysticism of certain charismatic groups, and among straightforward, solid Bible-believing churches. Because this is the disease of the modern culture. Uh, looking in and looking in and looking in, but see, without the lampstand, without the Holy Spirit, without the oil of the lampstand uh, lit by the fire of the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus so that the eyes of our heart are enlightened, we just go on in uh, introspective darkness and so uh, people on the spiritual side of it, they pray and pray and pray. Then they look in to see if they're having the right emotional responses to their own prayers. They look in to try to find a feeling. Am I feeling God? Is God showing up inside me in a, in a way that my emotions can detect him on my emotional radar screen? Is that how I know God is with me? I look inside to see, and then they, they look inside and see dark, and they start then deciding that God doesn't love them, and God doesn't hear them, and God doesn't want them. See, they don't they don't take the promise of God. They, they, there's no faith here, see. He that comes to me must believe that I am, and that I, I am a rewarder. All God wants you to do is believe, believe that he meant what he said when he said, I love you and I'm coming after you and I want you to throw the whole weight of your neediness upon me. Cast yourself upon me. And so the preciousness of the body and blood in the Eucharist to a believing heart, you, you kneel in humility and childlike dependence and you receive the broken body and poured out blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You receive it like a child. You receive it in faith, which means you believe God is faithful. That's what faith is. You look up at him and the eyes of your heart looks up at him and informs your mind with light and revelation and truth. And the real presence is not something you look for in your feelings. If you have feelings, that's wonderful. But you don't check with your feelings to see if God is true or not. You give thanks to God in the dark sometimes, if necessary, knowing that he is present with you, whether it's dark or light, and to him, darkness and light are all the same. So if you can't see, it doesn't matter because he can. And so you trust him even in the dark. Uh, on the other hand, you, you have uh, the, the uh, kind of introspection that is uh, legalistic, Oh, all the theologies there, all the right answers are there. They do believe the scriptures. 
only as historical fact and theologically constructed uh, fact. But they don't believe them enough to go beyond them to the, the, the real presence the scriptures point to. And so even still, uh, whether you're in muddy mysticism on the left or, or, or uh, legalism on the right, I'm not using left and right in reference to politics. I'm, I'm just using it as a juxtaposition of the two points of view. But whether you're in, in muddy mysticism in, on one side that just l- believes all kind of strange hocus-pocus and doesn't stand on the authority of Scripture, or you claim to stand on the authority of Scripture, but you don't believe what the Scriptures tell you is real. So you end up with John chapter 5.39 that I quoted a while ago. Search the Scriptures in them. You think you have life, but they point to me and you won't come to me. So uh, I'm saying all that to say this. If you believe the Scriptures that point you to the real presence and you believe the real presence is with you and in you, that Christ has come to live in you and bring you home to the Father, then you're able to start living out of Romans chapter 8. You're able to start living with the healing word coming to you and all those broken pieces in you that the Holy Spirit reveals by the entrance of his word which brings light you start seeing where you are in unforgiveness, and so you begin to forgive, and that those broken pieces are put back together. Then you start seeing where you're cut off from different parts of your soul, cut off from your true masculinity, cut off from your true femininity, cut off from your uh, creative abilities. Um, You think of yourself as a a loser. You think of yourself as a sinner that's just too sinful to be forgiven. All these lies begin to be exposed. And all the feelings that those lies produce. Remember I told you there's there's not a picture without a feeling. There's not a feeling without a picture. So when the Holy Spirit comes and begins to open the scriptures to us, we begin to receive the true imagination. The true imagination is the impartation of the invisible real sent to our thinking processes by word, by scripture, by revelation. And I'm not talking about revelation beyond scripture. I'm talking about revelation that affirms and aligns itself with scripture. But it comes in in uh, dreams sent by the Holy Spirit to put his finger on some aspect of the heart that needs to be focused on and prayed through. You see, you see where th- this is the key to the healing of every broken thing in us. You're depressed. Why are you depressed? Where did the depression come from? The Holy Spirit can bring you insight, bring you understanding. Uh, but you see, we... We read these things. We can read these things. We can hear lectures on these things. And still, after we hear the lecture or read the book, go, oh yeah, okay, I understand all that. Yeah, I know all that. But, and then we start butting, butting our heads against whatever wall we're butting. And, and you never do it. See, at some point, you have to take the menu and say, okay, I'm ready for the meal. And the meal is to lay aside the book 
and go into the presence of the one the book has revealed to you and uh, receive the healing word. Listen for the healing word. Receive the picture he sends. Receive the insight and the revelation and the understanding. See, the, the true imagination is not just the picture-making faculty of your brain. The true imagination means that you're receiving the invisible reality into your psyche in a form that informs you with reality and truth. And that then begins to replace the false and the dark and the uh, unhealed and the demonic and the unloving and the unpeaceful and that which causes you to be terrified of the future and so ashamed of the past that you can't live in the present. I think we need to pray instead of me trying to hammer this in. Father, I pray for every man and woman listening to my voice right now. I pray that the Holy Spirit would descend into their darkness, that you would light the candle, uh, the lampstand of their spirit. The entrance of your word gives light. The, the, the lampstand of the Lord is the spirit of man. Let the lampstand uh, light up in the heart of every person listening to my voice right now and begin to reveal to them the places where they have been cut off from you, cut off from themselves, not listening to the truth, listening to the re replaying tapes of old lying voices from way back or even recently, wherever they have believed uh, a lie. Father, we pray for those who are cut off from significant and important parts of themselves where they've never been affirmed as men, never been affirmed as women. Any part of themselves that needs to be integrated and brought back into wholeness, Father. Lord, light their spirit and shine it into every part of their inner being. In Jesus' name.